Right, brothers and sisters, let's ask the Lord to be with us as we look at the word of God together, shall we? Let's pray together. Our dear Heavenly Father, what can we say to you? You know all things. What can we tell you? What can we reveal to you? You are God, and we are but man, but dust. But our need of you this morning, Lord, therefore, is so great. And Lord, we acknowledge that the speaker and the hearers alike, by and of ourselves, Lord, we can do nothing. But we are asking you to communicate to us. We are asking you to speak. You are the God who speaks. Lord, we're asking you to meet with us in your word and reveal your counsel to us. Lord, speak and let your servants hear. Anoint my speaking and all our hearing. Deliver us, O God, from ourselves and minister your word to us. Let there be refreshing encouragement, if necessary, rebuke. Lord, but would you bring it? And we ask that your hand would be upon us for the entirety of this time. And we ask that this time in your word would be a time that goes into eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen. One of you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first three verses. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well now I want to begin by startling you. And I'm going to say this. Chapter 2 is not in the original text of your Bible. By which I mean the number. The number two wasn't in the original text when Paul wrote it. We have numbers, we have chapters and verses in our Bibles to help us to be able to find where certain verses are. And it is quite helpful for us that we can actually say, please turn to Ephesians 2, and you're able to turn the page and find where it is. Because if we didn't have that number in there, you'd be looking down the verse and having to read through a fair bit to finally find the verse that you're looking for. So in many ways, it can be quite helpful. But it's important for us to realize that Paul didn't write 
to the church at Ephesus and put chapter 1. I can't remember the last time I wrote, let's say, a letter to Brother Jared and said, Dear Brother Jared, chapter 1, verse 1. It was so good to see you last week, verse 2. You just wouldn't do it, would you? And, uh, but that's what's happened, and God sovereignly has overruled and has allowed this to happen. But remember, the letter to the Ephesians is one letter. And the problem with chapter divisions are when you begin a new chapter, unfortunately, it can disassociate the mind from what you've read previously. And that's one danger with chapter divisions. And the reason I mention that is because if you look at chapter 2 and verse 1, it begins with the word and. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. And you. Now, the and obviously means that Paul is going to say something new in relation to something that is already said. And so what is it that he's springboarding from, if you like, from chapter 1 to go into chapter 2 with? Well, let's just have a resume of chapter 1. We've been looking at it for just over a year, so you can have another five minutes, can't you? And basically, when you look at Ephesians chapter 1, you have this statement where Paul is speaking about the fact that the people of God are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Important to remember that phrase, heavenly places. Paul is lifting the believers at Ephesus up to see that they are seated with the Lord Jesus, that they're blessed with the Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus. And the rest of the chapter is kind of a cascading of divine blessings that flow down upon the people of God. In verse 4, he goes on to say that we are chosen in him. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Part of the blessings of the believer is the fact that we are chosen by God. And don't ask me to tell you why God chose you. I've no idea. I've no idea why God chose me, that's for sure. But all I know is the Bible says it. And if the Bible says it, that means the Holy Spirit wrote it. And if God wrote it, I accept it. And that's it. End of story. Just receive it as it's written. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Goes on to say in verse 5 that we've been predestined. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. We've been picked out by God. And then he goes on in verse 7 to speak that in the Lord Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Isn't it marvellous? Well, I think it is anyway. And then he goes on to say in verse 10 something of the plan and purpose of God. A plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The plan of God is to unite everything, sum up everything in Christ. That's God's intention and it comes through in chapter 1. And then when you go a little bit further in chapter 1, Paul goes on to speak about further blessings we have. That in the Lord Jesus we have an inheritance. 
If you're born of the Spirit of God this morning, you have an inheritance. And Peter speaks about our inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you read from verse 1, it goes on to speak about we have an inheritance that is, that is kept, that is reserved for us. It cannot fade away. It's marvelous. And something of that reality is the hope of the believer that enables him to endure in the present. And the enemy, by the way, will do everything he can to distract you from your inheritance because he knows if you're able to focus on what you have to come, you will have the strength by divine grace to be able to press through in the present. But the enemy, is one of his chief desires is to distract you from eternal realities so that you're taken up with the present and so that all that you've got is the, the, the now. And that tends to bog you down, that tends to bring you down, bring a heaviness upon you. But remember, even our sufferings, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So even if we're going through difficulties in the present, don't allow the difficulties, as it were, to become an end in and of themselves. They're not, not for the believer. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, it says in Romans 8 and verse 28. So we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that to keep our eyes on Jesus, to keep our eyes on what's to come, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Hebrews chapter 12. You and I need to be those that look beyond with the eye of faith. And also to realize that we're not looking at things that are somehow out of our grasp now because in a very real sense, we have already come to Mount Zion. And in a very real sense, we are in heavenly places now. You and I might be seated or standing in this particular building, in the sanctuary at Court Farm. But in reality, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's the reality of things. And the eye of faith perceives it, receives it, and lives in the good of it. Brothers and sisters, it's not a matter of feelings. It's just a matter of receiving. Believing what God says like a child. And all the more as we see so much wickedness approaching on the earth. Our dear sister at the back was mentioning our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. So we need to focus on the above. So Paul speaks about us having obtained an inheritance in verse 11. He speaks about us having been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance in verse 13 and 14. And then when you get to verse 15, we have this passage where we read about Paul's prayer. We read about his longing for the church at Ephesus. And remember, he says that he's not ceasing to pray for them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And he's particularly longing for three things. Verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling or to know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's verse, the first thing. Secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's the second thing Paul's really praying into. And thirdly, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. 
And I suggest to you, it's that last element of prayer, that third thing that Paul's praying for, that is linked with the first statement of Ephesians chapter 2. And you. Let me read it together. So if you look back at verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead. Do you see? Paul is carrying on his thought from what is said about the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he says that Christ had died and had been raised by the power of God. And then (laughs) he goes on to speak about the fact that you and I also have been those that have those who were dead. And we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now the Lord Jesus died on our behalf. He died and bore in his body the punishment for our sins. He took our sins upon himself. It's not that the Lord Jesus was sinful at all. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took the punishment for our sins. He, He took it all in his own body. He died because he was bearing our sins in his body upon the tree and as a result the punishment was falling upon him from the Father. He died for our sins but we were dead in our sins. That's the difference. And so Paul brings a comparison between the death and resurrection of Christ and the life of the believer. This isn't unusual. Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. There is a comparison with the work of Christ and our own resurrection from the dead. He says in verse 4 of chapter 6 of Romans, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see? There is this comparing, there's this coming together between what Christ has wrought for us on the cross and our own spiritual reality. Very well then, let's just look further at the actual words that are mentioned then in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I want you to just think about the words that Paul uses here. There's no slip-up in the scripture. Paul is clearly under the anointing and the direction and the leading of the Holy Spirit. There's not one word out of place in Holy Scripture. Everything, everything is God-breathed in this book. Everything. And it's profitable for us. It's profitable for us this morning. That's why Do not just skim over your Bibles. Meditate upon them. Chew over them. See what the Word is saying. Pray. Ask God to open the Scriptures to you. For it is so important that we don't just skate over Scriptures or allow our own hearts, as it were, to misinterpret texts in order to, so that we can have our own idea of what we want God to be. This is quite a powerful text that we're reading this morning. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, Paul doesn't say, and you were rebels in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He could have said that, couldn't he? 
Would any of us have felt that that would have been inaccurate? Not at all. He would have been quite within his um, reason to mention that we are dead, uh, sorry, that we are rebels in trespasses and sins. He could have said, and you were hard-hearted in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But he doesn't say that. He says that we were dead. That is the worst condition possible. That's the worst outcome possible that could possibly be stated on anybody. It doesn't get worse than dead, does it? You see, if Paul had said we were in a bad condition there would still be hope for us to be revived. Do you understand? There would still be a possibility that we could come through in and of ourselves concerning our salvation because we were just badly injured. If somebody is badly injured, if you hear about a friend who's badly injured, something within you hopes that it's not going to be unto death, but there's still hope in you. But when you hear that somebody has died, there's a finality about it, isn't there? There's no hope in death. And in fact, Paul goes on to make that point in the verse 11 and 12 of the same chapter. If you look a little bit, little bit further down, it says in verse 11 of chapter 2, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world having no hope. There wasn't even some hope. This is so, so important for us to understand this morning. This is of paramount importance. Because if you think there's any hope in and of yourself to come through to Christ in and of yourself, then you have robbed God of the glory. The fact of the matter is, Paul doesn't just say we were dead as a one-off here. He also mentions that fact in verse 5 of chapter 2, and he also mentions it in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. <coughs> that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Now just think for a moment the kind of language that's being used, the kind of picture that Paul is painting here for a minute. You have to be very careful with language you use because you're going to be describing something to other people and if you give the wrong description, then they're going to get the wrong end of the stick. This word is clearly used in Scripture for a purpose, is it not? Now you think about a dead person for a moment. A dead person can't respond. A dead person can't hear. A dead person can't feel. 
A deaf person can't experience any form of softening of the heart. A dead person cannot change his mind. A dead person cannot make a step in the right direction. A dead person could do absolutely nothing unless someone outside of that dead person does something to that dead person and raises them to life. It's the only way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In what way were you dead? You were dead toward God. You were dead toward God. And actually, the problem is, with many of us within the church today, we don't realize it, but the scriptures are explicit on this matter. I stand on the authority of the word of God this morning. I tell you, friends, that man outside of Christ is not indifferent towards God. He hates God. Man by nature is a rebel. He is not indifferent towards God. He hates God. He will not have this man to reign over him. I want my independence of God. You say, where does it say that? And I say to you, have you never read your Bible? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. I could do scripture like this. Everywhere. The problem is that we have dampened down the condition of man's heart to such a degree where we think, well, really, they're indifferent towards God. And if they only knew the truth, they would respond. That's not true. I know of people who have known and seen God move and they still don't want to follow him. In the book of Jeremiah, the Bible states that the heart is deceitful above all things. Now, brothers and sisters, God does not say things to play games. God is not exaggerating. And neither am I, because I'm not interested. You can't exaggerate on the condition of man. It's appalling. The condition of our hearts are not those that are indifferent to godly things. We are haters of God. And I sort of think how awful it must be for God that those who he created are haters of God. And then you have people outside saying, if God's real, how can he bring all these terrible things on the planet? And you just think of the rebelliousness and foolishness of such a statement. The problem in our day is that in the church, we have pumped a message to everybody around saying, God loves you. God loves you. God's there for you. It doesn't matter how you live. God's just in heaven because he loves you. And very rarely are we hearing from the pulpits of our day messages going forth saying, you need to repent and turn from your sin. Flee from the wrath to come.
David Wilkerson used to say, we're preaching your okay messages. It's exactly what we're doing. And we've lost sight of the fact that God is a holy God. And God hates sin and men hate God. And we're not in a bad condition before we're saved. You're not in a bad condition before you're born again. You're in a hopeless condition because you're dead. And there's only one person in all the universe that can change your condition and it's not you. And it's not you. There's only one person that can change such a condition and it's the almighty God of heaven. Look over, I want to give you an example in scripture of those who are dead and what happens as a result of God's moving. Turn with me for a moment please to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Going to read from verse 28. This is Lazarus. Jesus could have come to Lazarus before Lazarus had died, right? Potentially. Verse 28 says, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, listen, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, there would have still been hope. There was still hope while my brother was still alive. There was still hope. You could have healed him. You could have saved him. You could have done something for my brother. my brother would not have died. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. I love that about Jesus. How he was deeply moved at this scene. He was a good friend of Lazarus. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Oh, this is such a wonderful statement. Jesus in his humanity wept. Wept. He knows the pains, the struggles, the trials. He knows what sin has done. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You see again, 
while Lazarus was alive, there was hope, but he's not anymore. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take the stone away. Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. What a statement. Just the assurance, the knowing of Jesus in relation to his father. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is a glorious, miraculous happening. And it's a picture to us of our glorious and great salvation. You think raising the dead is a miracle? I tell you, a great, greatest miracles. One of the greatest miracles is that I was born again of the Spirit of God. That you are born again of the Spirit of God. That God takes a hater of God and takes him out of the world and makes him a new creation and puts him back in the world and he stays holy in an unclean world. That is the power of God. That is the new creation. That is the work of God. And I think it's so interesting that Jesus actually says to them, roll the stone away, put the stone out of the way. You know, surely the father could have given the son a voice loud enough But there's a sense here, I think, which is even speaking to us of something else. You see, the stone has to be rolled away that is your old heart. That stone needs to be taken out of the way. Because you can't hear God with an old heart like that. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. But Lazarus can't come forth because he's dead. Something happened here. Something happened here. Lazarus only obeyed the Lord because the Lord had already just made him alive. Let me put it like this. You may see a person on the street dead in their blood. just lying there. If you say to somebody who's dead, you really need to get to the hospital, are they going to respond? No. How did you respond to God? 
Ezekiel 36 is the revelation of the way of God with man concerning salvation. And in Ezekiel 36, you have what God does in order to make new what would otherwise remain dead. Look with me to Ezekiel 36, please. Now this is speaking of the people of Israel. Let us remember, brothers and sisters, this morning. It's really important. God has not finished with the people of Israel. God has not finished with his people. He is bringing them back to the land that he has chosen for their portion out of all the nations. And they are making aliyah and coming out and coming to the land because in the end, God is setting the scene for a glorious revival that will take place. And there will be this fountain open for sin for Israel. The idea that the church has replaced Israel is a wrong teaching. Lance Lambert used to say, if you have no place for Israel, you have lost your end time compass. It's a pretty good way of putting it. God has not finished with Israel. He speaks about his covenant being with the house of Israel and Judah. Now you get replacement theologists trying to take a text from Galatians and say, no, 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 we are the Israel of God. Um, All the blessings that were in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, various passages, all of those blessings now belong to the church. (laughs) You see? And the curses are left with Israel. It's a little bit one-sided, don't you think? It's not just one-sided, it's unbelievably distorted. We get the blessings. We are the Israel of God. Oh, Paul warned the Gentile church in Rome about taking that kind of attitude. Okay, let's say that Israel is the church in the New Testament. You want to take a verse from Galatians, and you want to use that to try to suppose that the church has replaced Israel. What are you going to do with the fact that the Bible says, with the house of Israel and Judah? There's not one, not one New Testament verse that speaks of the church as Judah. It's clear. God has not rejected his ancient people. So when we look at Ezekiel 36, when we look at Jeremiah 31, we see in original context God is speaking to the Jewish people. But remember this. The very blessings that are given to the Jewish people, you've got to remember, in many senses, they let go of it. They are enemies of the gospel, Paul says, in Romans chapter 11, for your sake. If they hadn't been any of the enemies of the gospel, where would we be? But the fact is they've let go of the gospel and there's a hardness over their heart, at least in part, until the Gentiles come in. 
So we come in to the covenant blessings that actually belong to Israel. And you can read about the fact that they belong to Israel in Romans 9. But we come into the blessings and the covenant. So we can look at these Old Testament uh, descriptions of covenant with Israel and see that we are part of what God has given to the Jewish people by his grace. So in Ezekiel 36, we read these verses. What does he say? Let's read from verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will take you from, this speaks of separation, from the other nations. There's no longer the mixture. And gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone the heart of stone the heart that can't respond to God the heart that hates God God doesn't simply Work on your heart of stone to make it a heart of flesh. It's incurable because it's wicked. God doesn't just leave it there. He takes it out. And God took away the stone from Lazarus' tomb. Look at what the text says, brothers and sisters. Consider it. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that beautiful? You see, there was a time under the Old Covenant where the commandments of God were written on stone and they weren't written on men's hearts. And they're written on stone to expose the nature of men's hearts in relation to the commandments. What the words on the stone showed is that our hearts are full of stone because we don't respond to the Word of God. And in the New Covenant, what God does is write His laws in our hearts, in our minds. He inscribes them, not on stone, something outward, but something inward within us, which is a glorious reality. So we see that this stone, going back to John chapter 11 and Lazarus, I think this stone in many senses represents that removing of the heart of stone. And... What God does is call us. And then with the calling is the quickening. You see, if you call a dead person, they won't respond to you. But if you quicken them to life in the calling, they will respond to you. And so that's exactly what happens here with Lazarus. He does, he's not dead. Friends, think about this. Lazarus is not dead as though he's in death and then can decide whether he wants to wake up or not. 
You understand? When you're dead, you can't decide anything. I'm not asking you to try it out on me. I think it might be a little bit painful for you to go that far. But it seems to me that decisions aren't made from the departed. They're not there making decisions. Shall I get up? This example of John 11 is quite poignant. It's it's quite powerful because the fact is it speaks of what God has done with you. And the problem is if we start to think that dead people can make decisions in and of themselves at will, and I'm not saying there comes a point where we respond to what God calls us to do, but that comes afterwards. What I'm telling you is that if you... Let's take, for example, this story with Lazarus. Let's imagine he comes out of the tomb. Somebody is nearby, and they say to their friend, he wasn't really dead. They put him into the tomb. He was badly injured, but he wasn't dead. It's still amazing he came out of the tomb, but he wasn't dead. What would that do? What that does is detract from Jesus the glory of the testimony. When you make it something less than what it really is, unwittingly, of course, but you detract from the glory going all to God. There's another example of the dead. We're not going to go into this all don't need to turn to it but think about Ezekiel 37 the chapter after the chapter we spoke about concerning the covenant and it talks about the valley of dry bones and Ezekiel the servant of God the prophet of the Lord is taken by the spirit to this valley and the bones were really dry And in verse 3 of 37, he says, Son of man, can these bones live? Now forgive me. I'm not meaning to sound trite, but I want to get a point across here. Ezekiel doesn't say, I don't know. You know, he doesn't begin to ask the bones whether they can live. He knows they're dead, right? And he has this amazing answer. And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. You know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Do you hear the force of that word? It's a commandment. You shall live. I had a man on the streets outside 
a while ago, a couple of months ago, he was so unhappy with what I was telling him about the gospel. And he says, it doesn't matter whatever you say, I'm not going to believe. I said, I know, the Bible told me that. Why are we surprised? Of course he's not going to believe. Unless God intervenes. You've got to remember, somebody like Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus, was the most anti-Christian zealot that there was. He was out to destroy this new faith that he saw as a menace to true Judaism. And he saw it as dangerous, and he was out to destroy it. And he was on his way to destroy it when God intervened. The Lord Jesus came to him and knocked him off his horse. And made Saul of Tarsus the great apostle. Only God can do that. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Hmm. So much had come together, but still no life in them. You can have the bones together. You can have the flesh on the bones, but it's still dead. Oh, you can have everything in its right place. You and I can even be very... If I may take a sidestep here. We can have everything in the right place. The bones might be together, the flesh and everything. We might feel that in a sense we're in a good place. But until the spirit comes, you are without life. God was already working in Ezekiel 37. This was working before the breath came into these people. So I prophesied as I was commanded. Oh, I've said that. Verse 8. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is the work of God. Do you see, dear friends? The dry bones couldn't help themselves onto their feet. Lazarus couldn't get himself out of the tomb, and you could not get yourself out of your sin because you were just as dead in your sins as Lazarus was in his tomb and then things happened hallelujah for that we'll turn back with me to Ephesians 2 as we come towards a close and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked Paul then goes on to say following the course of this world following the prince of the power 
of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul says that we were dead in our sins, but he goes on to explain it further. He says that actually we were under the influence and the powers of darkness. This spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. Dear friends, when you look at people outside who aren't believers, who've got ideas that are so contrary to the will of God, it's not only the fact that they are rebellious, sinful creatures and don't want anything to do with God, The powers of darkness have claim over their souls and are affecting their thinking unto his own ends to drag them into hell. And when people think about evolution and the idea that all this creation came about from a particular swamp somewhere, wherever that was, and then we all have this order and creation... Over billions of years, we are where we're at. The root of that teaching is demonic. That's the root of it. And have nothing to do with evolution or the proponents of it. Nothing. They teach a lie. And they suppress the truth in unrighteousness so people can live a life against God and their consciences are seared. It's wicked. The powers of darkness, it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. You can't argue a person into the kingdom of God. Not even if you're the best apologetic person in all the world. And you speak all the truth against Darwinism and evolution and Richard Dawkins and all the rest of them. No matter what you say, you can't simply reason somebody to become a believer. Why? Because it's not simply their reason that is holding them in their current delusion concerning Christianity. It's the powers of darkness, you see. The enemy has blinded their minds. There's much more need than simply trying to persuade somebody in the kingdom of God. Persuasion comes, but unless God opens the mind and illuminates the heart and takes out the heart of stone and gives the heart of flesh, that person will remain in their sins. That's why prayer is so important. They're under the grip of the enemy. They are, think of it, I find this such an astonishing statement that this spirit is working in the sons of disobedience. That means demonic powers are active in unregenerate souls. You can't just say to a fellow, hi, do you mind coming on a Christian course? We'll go through the course together and by the end of it you can say, yes, you're a Christian. That doesn't make somebody a Christian. They need deliverance. If somebody's going to get saved, they need a mighty deliverance from the powers of darkness. That's what they need. So Paul speaks about the powers of darkness upon us. Paul speaks about the fact in verse 3 that we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now what does this show us? Paul brings out the three enemies of the Lord Jesus within this verse, or these two verses. He speaks about the world, he speaks about the powers of darkness, and he speaks about the flesh. All three of them are there. 
and they're all enemies of God, and they're all working in cahoots with one another to keep you from seeing the light. This is a desperate situation. This is an utterly impossible situation. There's nothing that can be done for us of ourselves when we read these scriptures. You see, dear friends, the Bible is quite clear concerning the heart of man. In Romans chapter 3, Paul makes it clear to us that there's none that seek after God. It says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, in your flesh dwells no good thing. There's nothing in your flesh that would respond to God because in it is nothing good. You're going to need God to do something apart from your flesh in order to bring you to a place where you want God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive Need I go on and on? There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the verdict of God on man without God doing something. So how are you going to save anybody? I want you to get to the point of exasperation here that you realize you can't save anybody. This is absolutely desperate. You're bringing us scriptures from the many passages this morning that are showing us that man can't turn to God. So what's the point? How can I? I'm so concerned about my sister. I'm so concerned about my mom. I'm so concerned about my daughter. I don't know what to do. I can't save them. The Bible shows me I can't. But God is able to save them. And He's the only one able to save them. So, what does that leave you with? It leaves you with doing one thing falling on your knees and pleading with God that God would come to that person. And that's it. Only God can save souls. But the fact of the matter is, when you have a burden in your spirit, in prayer, that you know is from God, the reason that burden is there is because God is wanting to do something. And the way God has chosen to work in the scriptures is by stirring the hearts of his saints to bring a prayer up to him that reaches heaven so that in due time, God may bring the blessing upon the prayer. And unless we do cooperate with God in prayer... What is going to happen? But you see, if we still think that people can come in the kingdom just by us persuading them, we won't be getting on our knees too much. There is no point in praying to God if the decision is all with the man. Literally no point. But if God is the great decider, If God is able to overrun someone, if God is able to break somebody down, if God is able to to harass somebody and bring them under such conviction of sin so that in the end they bow the knee to him, then it gives us hope in prayer. But if you believe that so much of it relies on man's heart, I, I think that would leave me in despair. Because if things are left to man's heart or the great majority of the decision, you know what that means? Nobody's going to heaven. That's all it means. Because nobody chooses God, friends. I've just read it from Romans 3, haven't I? How could it be clearer? Nobody chooses God. Just look. 
Read Isaiah 53. We've all turned everyone to its own way. That's what we do. And the truth of the matter is that the Bible shows us in various places that we are hostile towards God before we're saved. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, listen, it cannot. Oh, brothers and sisters, the language of the scriptures is strong, isn't it? Don't you think we should meditate on it? Don't you think we should consider these words mean something? Have they no gravity, no weight? Are they just words on a page? Does God just fill up the text for the sake of it? Or do they mean something? Can a person in their flesh turn to God? It says here they cannot. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. What mind is set on the flesh? The unregenerate. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 14. The natural person, the natural man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Why not meditate on that verse for the whole week? See what it says. Weigh up what I'm saying to you. Consider. Chew it over. Contemplate. Make room for yourself to think whether what I'm saying is actually right this morning. Don't just take my word for it. Read the scriptures for yourselves. You say, is man not accountable for his own sin? He's fully accountable. He is fully accountable. But the fact remains, unless God raised the dead, the dead stay dead. We have seen this morning, dear friends, now notice, if I go back to Ephesians 2 as we close, Paul paints such a drastic picture in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 for a purpose. The reason he's showing such an awful outlook concerning what we were before we were saved is not to rub our noses in the dirt. He's setting the platform for something he's going to say. He's setting the scene, if you like, for something which he's going to bring in. What is it? He's going to say in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And Paul is making room to show that the only way we can be saved is by grace. It's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Brothers and sisters, you may look at this and you may think, well, if that's what the condition of men's hearts are outside, what is the point of even trying to evangelize them? 
But remember where I started this morning. I started by talking to you about God's power. I started talking to you about the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is toward us who believe. I spoke about the fact that it's the power of the Lord that raised Lazarus up from the dead. It's the power of the Spirit that enabled these dead bodies to live and be raised up a mighty army. It's God. It's his power. And his power is greater than our death. You may say it's still dead in trespasses and sins, hostile towards God. It seems impossible You say the same thing the disciples said to Jesus about the rich man. And my response to you as we close is this. You're absolutely right. With man it is impossible. But with God all things are possible. He is a mighty saviour. And he is the one who raises the dead. That's why you are here. Take heart. Be encouraged. Reckon upon the power of God and pray and pray and believe and pray and you will see that our God is still the God of miracles. May God add his blessing to his word. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. Oh Lord, I have to walk away from every time I preach, knowing how far short your servant is of you. How weak I am. How feeble I am. How imperfectly I bring your word to your people. But Lord, I'm asking you, in spite of the imperfections of the preacher, his weakness, and all that he is of himself, I ask that what you have said in your great mercy to your people through this imperfect vessel, we ask that you would write these things on our hearts. Help us to glory in the gospel of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. We ask these things, Father. Thank you so much for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for their patience. Thank you for their love. Thank you for saving them. Thank you for the blessing they are to me. I pray that for each one you would minister your grace and your life and your light and your power and your love into each one. And those that have difficult situations, Lord, that I've even heard about this week, minister of your balm to them. Let them know yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, and that you're able to do great things. In Jesus' name, amen.